Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary, and not guaranteed. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. One day when I was in the middle of my internship, I got a phone call from a someone who would ultimately be my mentor from Bethesda, Maryland, who was in the public health service and said, congratulations, we're offering you a position at the NIH. You will be a commissioned officer in the United States Public Health Service starting in July of 1968. Do you accept? <laughs> and I said, absolutely. <laughs> and that was it. That's, of course, Dr. Anthony Fauci. He's describing how his extraordinary 50-plus-year career at the National Institutes of Health began. In a conversation I had with him in a program arranged by the 92nd Street Y in New York, we explored how that job offer came about and how it became part of a revolution in American medicine. Hello, my pal. Hey, Alan. Great to see you. I'm so glad to see you again. You and I are like a double act now. I think, I think we've had these conversations five or six times so far. Indeed. I always like to say the date when you and I talk in public because times change so rapidly that it's good to know when we said this. This is December 18th, 2020, and it's a day that's filled with some sadness. The illness and the deaths have never been at such a pace. But it's also a day of hope because in a few days, probably we'll have two uh, vaccines that will that will be available to us. And also because of what we're talking about tonight, mostly, which is that program that you were part of decades ago during the Vietnam War at the NIH, which was called the Associates Program, I think, right? The Associates Program? Right, exactly. And in our podcast that's published today by Audible, uh, it's it, the title of the podcast is Soldiers of Science. And one of the things that I think is valuable for all of us out there is that I think we get to know you a little more in a personal way on the podcast, which is really helpful. The image of you as a kid on your Schwinn bike, I just love. Your father was a pharmacist. Is that right? Indeed. Yes, he was, Alan. And you delivered prescriptions on your Schwinn bike for your dad? Yes, he had a pharmacy, a family pharmacy in, in the Bensonhurst and Dyker Heights section of Brooklyn. And during my childhood years, I would have my bicycle and deliver prescriptions to the people in the neighborhood. And I would even get sometimes a 15 cent tip. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I, I loved what you, what you mentioned when we were talking on Soldiers of Science. You, you talked about how when 
when a customer didn't have enough money to pay for the prescription, your dad just let it go. Right. That's a, that's a very touching thing to remember. Was that it? Do you think that was sort of an inspiration for you as your life went on? You know, it was at the time I didn't understand it very well, Alan. Uh, I was sort of saying, well, why are you doing that? You know, we, (laughs) we, we need to have money too. And uh, he would say, you know, very calmly, well, you really got to appreciate this individual really is in a very stressful time. So we got to help him out and give him a break. So it was always more that he was a service to the community, Alan, rather than a money-making operation. It was more that he was a public service. So I think that was one of the things that triggered in me this concept of public service. And that sure came in handy when that when you were in you were in medical school one day and that Marine major came into the class. Right. That must that must have seared his message into your brain the way he told you. What, what do you remember what he said? Yeah, well, you know, for context, it was during the Vietnam War and every single medical student who would soon become a doctor was automatically drafted. So the what happened is that in the fourth year of medical school, uh, a recruiting major in the Marine Corps came to Cornell Medical School, got us into the auditorium. And uh, since this was in the 60s, we had very few women in the in the in the class. And I remember he got in front of the auditorium and said, uh, greetings, my name is Major so-and-so. Uh, I just wanted to let you know that there are 88 people in this class, uh, except for the two young women who are up there in the fourth row. Every single one of you, when you graduate, will either be in the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, or the United States Public Health Service, because you've been drafted. So the United States Public Health Service part of it was that you had a choice. Um, You could go up, and we did, and say, put your choice in for what you would like to be, and we we will try to match you to your choice. And since I was interested in academic medicine and in infectious disease, I felt the opportunity to go to the United States Public Health Service, which is a non-armed military um, uniform service with uniforms essentially similar to the Navy, but with the same type of military obligation. So I put down US Public Health Service first because the two major components were the NIH and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. I put the Navy second, the Army third, and the Air Force fourth. And they said, you'll probably be hearing within the next six months or so as to what you've been chosen for. And I just waited around. And then one day when I was in the middle of my internship, I, and I you know, had an obligation of a couple of years of residency, I got a phone call from a, someone who would ultimately be my mentor from Bethesda, Maryland, who was in the public health service and said, congratulations, we're offering you a position at the NIH. You will be a commissioned officer in the United States Public Health Service starting in July of 1968. Do you accept? <laughs> and I said, absolutely. <laughs> and that was it. And what they were doing is that they were recruiting down to the NIH, you know, really some of the best and the brightest people who would be doing as young men and women, mostly young men, the kind of basic and clinical research 
for those three-year commitment that we had to the United States service. And that was our commitment to during the Vietnam War. Getting down to the NIH, it was a most extraordinary experience. It was a highly academic setting where people who were extremely well-known in their field. So the idea of going down there and having a choice, because if you went to a particular institute, there were multiple laboratories in the institute, and they gave you the first month or so to go around, speak to people, interview, to decide which particular project you like to be on. And you would go interview, and if someone felt it was a good match, you would be in that laboratory. But some of the people who were at your disposal were the people who were the heroes in medicine that you heard about when you were in medical school. So it was kind of being like a kid in a candy store where you see all of these possible choices that were just extraordinary. It was, it was a wonderful experience. Did you have a choice that you hoped to get, a, a path for research that you were really looking forward to working on? You know, the answer was when I went down there, Alan, I was completely undifferentiated. I was very well trained clinically. You know, I was considered during my years of residency as a really top-notch clinician. So that was my identity. But I felt when I went down there, why don't I do the most basic research I possibly could do to learn, am I good at it? Do I like it? Would I be successful at it? So I chose a laboratory that was very basic and fundamental. And I learned you know, the art and science of doing that. But the one thing I did do, and that was the benefit of being in a laboratory that was housed right at the NIH hospital. It's called the NIH Clinical Center. It's the largest research hospital in the world. Mm. And that's where my lab was, that's where my mentor was. So I did have the extraordinary opportunity of on the one hand doing very basic research, but on the other hand, continuing to see patients on a daily basis. It was very, very unusual. You would have the wards here and literally within 25 feet around the corner from the hospital beds were the laboratories where we were doing our experiments. So it was a wonderful marriage between the bench and the bedside. That sounds like such an enormously inspiriting situation where you have the you have the lab to work in to figure out the solution to a disease but you have the patient just a few feet away who must be in your mind the whole time encouraging you to find that solution as fast as you can and as truly as you can that combination of the inspiration and the tools to to work out the problem at least at that time, was very unusual, wasn't it? Well, it was very unique because, understandably, most times hospitals throughout the country were service organizations mm -hmm. and enterprises, rightly so, because the main purpose was to take care of sick patients. We had as good clinical care and clinical principles anywhere, but it was set up that your responsibility was such that you had to do research, but you also had very easy access to the patients. Yeah. It was very unique in a positive way. As I remember you, at one point you were working on patients with two different problems. One was cancer 
and the other was immune problems? Well, as it worked out, Alan, I wasn't working on cancer, but I got the inspiration for one of the projects that I did um, in an almost accidental way that, that I think reflects the beauty of the interaction between people of different disciplines. In this big, big clinical center that had 13 floors and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of beds, that I was on the 11th floor and my diseases that I was concerned with were these serious, deadly autoimmune diseases that were inflammatory diseases of blood vessels. They were called the vasculitides. And there were a number of different syndromes. Almost all of them were universally fatal. And people were treating them with modest amounts of anti-inflammatory agents, but they weren't curing them. The prognosis was terrible. Well, on the 13th floor were my colleagues who were doing their thing, but only in the Cancer Institute. And they were in the process of finding the cures for acute lymphoblastic leukemia, for Hodgkin's disease. As a fact, Hodgkin's disease and acute lymphoblastic leukemia, the cures of that were found and discovered on the 13th floor, which was two floors above me. So when I would go up there, as the infectious disease consult, because when you treat people with high doses of chemotherapy, you can often cure their disease, but they get into trouble with infections because you suppress their immune system. So I would go up there and be a consult on the patients who are having infectious complications because my training was infectious disease. And we got the idea one day when we were up there, we needed to suppress the immune system of the people with autoimmune disease, but we didn't need to suppress it so much that you wiped out the bone marrow because that would make it a big risk for those people getting into trouble. So we took the drugs that they were treating the patients with cancer with, and we gave it in very low doses to the people who had non-cancer autoimmune disease. And to our amazing gratification, the low dose suppressed their abnormal immune system just enough to turn off the disease, but not enough to compromise them that they would be at risk for a secondary infection. So we, de- we developed cures for diseases that were otherwise deadly because we used a slightly lower dose of a, of a drug that had only previously been used for cancer. After we established and proved our therapeutic regimens, the remission rate was 93%. Hmm. So you went from almost 98, 99% chance of dying to a 93% chance of being better. And that was because of the collegiality of the entire place. People traded notes, they, they gave suggestions to one another, they shared their experience. Was it because they were all in the same place? Did they have a sense of common purpose? What what led to that collegiality? Because that seems to be such an important element in what yeah. your experience was. Well, there was there was a commonality of uh, experience uh, among the younger people because all of us were in the same boat. All of us were individuals who had to make that same choice that I did a year and a half, two years before of either being there in the public health service or being in the army or the Navy or the Air Force. So 
there was something we all had in common. We all came from first-rate medical schools and first-rate internships and residency. So it was kind of like you were automatically on the same team. You were teammates, even though you might be on a different floor or you were doing a different discipline, you were teammates. Uh, and the senior attendings, who were the ones that were essentially supervising all of this, treated you like peers. They didn't treat you like underlings. They treated you, even though you were very young, they treated you like you were equal to them, which made it a very, very nice atmosphere. And that ability to have a patient at, that you, who, whose, whose health was important to you in the most personal way, had had so many repercussions and led to so many amazing breakthroughs at, at the NIH during that period. Um, on the podcast on, on the Soldiers of Science, we tell the story of Brown and Goldstein, who met this eight-year-old girl and became their patient. And she had cholesterol at a level 10 times higher than a normal adult. And she she had been told earlier she would she would die before she got old enough to ride a bike. Did you know Brown and Goldstein at that time? Were you there at the same time? Yes, very much so. Yes, we we were we knew each other quite well. It was very clear from the beginning that these were two people who were going to go someplace. They were extremely bright, extremely creative. They worked very well together. And as you know, some years later they shared the Nobel Prize. I do. And and they never stopped working with that little girl in their mind. Right. They, they set up labs and collaborated for 50 years together, a long, long collaboration. And Roy Vagelos, who was also a soldier of science at the NIH, took what they had understood, what they finally began to understand about cholesterol and was able to make the first statin, I think. Right. And among those three people in that program, they, they, those three people alone through what they did based on their work starting at the, at the NIH led to millions of people not dying from, from what the statins were able to prevent. Right. And that happened over and over again. Well, you know, if you look at my class <laughs> of 1968, we had... Brown and Goldstein, who you mentioned, who went on to win the Nobel uh, Prize about because of understanding lipid metabolism and how you can get statins to suppress that. Then we had my dear friend, Harold Varmus, who came in also in the Cancer Institute, was taking care of patients with leukemia. He discovered the gene that is associated with the regulation of cancer. You know, you've heard of cancer genes that if you have a certain gene, it gives you a greater propensity to cancer. Well, Harold discovered that, and guess what? He went on to win a Nobel Prize. <laughs> so also in that class that you probably know is another very good friend of mine, Bob Lefkowitz. Right. Bob Lefkowitz found the fundamental mechanisms of receptor signaling in cells. And sure enough, Bob Lefkowitz won the Nobel Prize. So oh, we have... <laughs> you guys did pretty well. So we have a joke among us. So there's, there's Mike Brown, Joe Goldstein, Harold Varmus, and Bob Lefkowitz, and Tony Fauci. 
the only dummy who didn't win a Nobel Prize was me. <laughs> After a short break, I'll be back with Anthony Fauci to talk about the deep reservoir of basic medical research that's been performed at the NIH and other institutions over the last few decades, and how that's made possible the extraordinary scientific response to the COVID crisis, including the unprecedented speed with which vaccines have been developed. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Dr. Anthony Fauci, when we'll also be answering questions from the audience listening in. It seems to me that it's important that you had an option to learn research, to do research in a field that interested you. And that option was an alternative to going to war, to go to the, the battlefield. Right. That had to be a motivating factor for some people who didn't believe in the war, didn't want to kill people, didn't want to get shot. 
to what extent do you think that was a crucial element that you were doing something of value, but you were also avoiding something you didn't want to be involved in? I remember when I made my decision, I would have been equally as comfortable if I had gone into the Navy. Uh, The fact that I went to the NIH, I think, was wonderful for my career. And it's the best thing that happened to me, not only for my career, but in my development as a physician and as a person. But I did not have that strong feeling like the only reason why I wanted to go there was because I didn't want to go to Vietnam. The reason I wanted to go there was because of the extraordinary opportunity that it offered me. If I got it, that would be great. If I didn't get it, well, that's the way it goes. Fortunately for me, I got it. There's no question that everybody there was serving their country. Uh, There was a a time when there were people who didn't understand that and were um, not happy that there were doctors who didn't have to go to the battlefront. So do you think it's possible to have some kind of request or mandate that young people do this kind of service for a couple of years? Well, Alan, I I absolutely feel that's the case. And, you know, we have had um, presidents of the United States bring that up intermittently, Mm. sort of have a couple of years of service for people. I mean, not drafting and going to war. I mean, our military now is an all-voluntary military. But to have a situation where individuals who get out of college or whatever particular stage they're in, that they have service in different areas, whatever that might be, that often gives you the opportunity to develop skills and interests that you would not if you didn't make that commitment. It would broaden everybody's perspective. Oh, absolutely. You know, it just occurred to me, you mentioned before that the uh, public health service is a uniformed branch. Did you have a uniform? I did. (laughs) But, you know, you only had to wear it once a week on Wednesday. Well, what happened on Wednesday? (laughs) They just picked out a day. You know, it was very interesting since we were in a hospital where most of the people were not in the service. So it wasn't like in a naval hospital where everyone has a uniform. So most people didn't wear a uniform at all until finally uh, when C. Everett Coop became the Surgeon General. He said, you know, we got to have some degree of showing who we are and our identity. So let's pick a time when one day a week on a Wednesday, you wear a uniform. So I went across the street. Across the street from the NIH is the former National Naval Medical Center, which is now called Walter Reed. And they have a beautiful shop of the uniforms for the various services. So I went there and, you know, got my summer whites and my winter blues and all that sort of stuff. And I would wear a a uniform uh, one day a week. Um, The only other time I wore a uniform was when the Surgeon General came over to give me a, a Surgeon General's medal. So I had to go find my uniform because I had packed it away somewhere in a drawer. (laughs) But I looked pretty good in it. (laughs) 
I bet you did. I don't. It's funny. I'm 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 surprised to hear that you were supposed to, at one point supposed to wear it every Wednesday because a couple of the doctors I interviewed who are on uh, you hear their voices on the Soldiers of Science and they were they told funny stories like at one group of doctors only had one uniform for the whole group. <laughs> Over- oh, whoever told you that story is telling you exactly the truth. The only trouble with that is that the uniform looked good on one person and horrible on the other five people. (laughs) So what do you think? Do you think that we're using today in this pandemic things that we learned at the NIH during the period of the Vietnam War? It was a long time ago. Is Is it still paying off for us now? Oh, yeah, because, you know, Science, uh, Alan, as you well know, is a building block of knowledge. So what you have now, you know, is two or three generations connected to what scientists did 40 years ago. One of the things that if you really want to bring it up into real time, the vaccines that are now going to turn around this COVID-19 pandemic the mRNA vaccines, some aspects of that originated at work that was done at the NIH and by NIH people. That is what I was hoping I I could point to, things like that, that we have reason to feel that there's hope. Uh, as, as, As we fight this, we've got tools that we may not be aware of, tools that were discovered decades ago by you and your colleagues at the NIH that we're still making use of. And beyond that, there's there's this, to me, a very hopeful thing. And I wonder if you agree with this. We learned from that project that we can do anything. We can can handle this. We've solved problems. You've solved problems, you and your colleagues, that seemed insoluble before. But they were able to work them out. And we're working this out now in an incredibly short period of time compared to how long it's ever taken before. So we've got it in us. We, we can be fortified by the knowledge that that experience, those what we call soldiers of science, what they went through, still pays off today. So I, I'm, I'm so grateful to you and everybody who took part in that program because it gives us hope for now when we need it so much. And if people want to hear more about this, they can get the Audible podcast from audible.com. Meanwhile, let's bring Taj in, who has questions from the audience that they've uh, been collecting. And it's good to hear from them and not just my questions. Taj, are you there? I'm here. The first, Dr. Fauci, my daughter is in medical school now, and I fear for what kind of political climate she will be working in. Are you hopeful or concerned for what these doctors will probably have to face, considering we seem to have a growing population who seem not to trust in science, facts, or medicine? Well, that really is a problem because over the last few years, we've had a growing what we call anti-science sentiment. Um, But I believe that that won't prevail uh, because there are enough people who understand the importance of science and the knowledge that science brings. I would tell the person who 
who asked the question that his daughter will be fine. Uh, when she gets out, if she becomes a physician or a scientist, that I really believe strongly that despite the fact that we are going through today in our country, a very divisive time, we've seen it in the response to COVID-19, where you have literally the country divided from a political standpoint, but also divided as with regard to the facts about what COVID is. Is it real? Is it a hoax? It's very, very real. Uh, and the anti-science elements in society uh, seem to confuse the issue that we're not dealing with a truly historic pandemic. But I believe, Raj, that that's going to pass. I think we're going to equilibrate back to normal. Great. Second question. Could the speed in which this vaccine has come to market be a watershed moment for the making of all future drugs, i.e., the banister four-minute mile? They said it couldn't be done. Well, they said a vaccine couldn't be created in such a short period. Could you see this changing drug making forever? Uh, absolutely, uh, because as Alan said just a little bit ago, uh, that the, the attitude of anything is possible looms large when you're thinking about the possibilities of where science can bring us. So we went from an identification of a new virus in the first week of January of 2020. We got into a phase one study in about 65 days. And then 11 months later, we're putting the vaccine into the arms of people, and that vaccine is 95% efficacious. I can tell you without hyperbole that five years ago, if you had told anybody who knows anything about vaccinology, could you possibly have a safe and effective vaccine within a year of the discovery of a new pathogen, they would have told you absolutely not. It would take at least several years. And it's the advances, the exquisite advances in the science of vaccine platform technology that has allowed us to do things in months that would normally have taken years. So in direct answer to your question, Taj, absolutely, we're gonna revolutionize how we make vaccines and how we do drugs. Fantastic. I'll go to the next question for our patrons. Why don't you think most of us have ever heard about the NIH Soldiers of Science program? It seems like it was so important to our national history. You know, that's a good question. Sometimes when you get a system or an organization that's so good that you believe it speaks for itself and you don't have to go speaking about it or promoting it. And you just go and do it because it's so naturally good. It doesn't need. And then all of a sudden years go by and then you get somebody like Alan who discovers it and says, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> Did this thing really happen? Uh, and that's exactly what happened with, with, uh, with Alan's appreciation when he was asking around about what this was. It was an extraordinary experience, but very low key. It wasn't self-promoting or self-advertising. You know, I can't take credit for discovering the story. Maggie Murphy at Audible came to me with the story. And I was so impressed by the fact that I had never heard about it before. And what a, what a wonderful story it was that I wanted to be part of the 
process and co-wrote it with Kate Rope and, and narrated it. There are so many unsung heroes whose stories would be wonderful to tell and they just get lost in the shuffle. Good point. The next question is, how did being a soldier of science change the kind of professional you became, Dr. Fauci? Well, it afforded me uh, an unprecedented opportunity to do research in a setting that I never would have had that opportunity in any other place. So it gave me three years of uninterrupted uh, ability to do research with full support without having to look over my shoulder for whether I'm going to get supported or not, but to just do it. There's a certain something in that freedom. It almost unchains you in saying anything is possible. I'm going to go out. Nobody's going to interfere with what I'm doing. And I'm going to try and do the best I can. That was a, a unique opportunity that then when I graduated to a senior position, I became the person who was the mentor to multiple generations of these soldiers of science. So not only did I benefit as being a soldier of science that was taught by someone who came before me, but I stayed there and I'm still there, you know, for a very long period of time. And I have become over the years, the mentor for multiple generations of soldiers of science. Fantastic, thank you. Uh, I think this might be for both of you. When we look at the history of pandemics and plagues on society, despite how consistently each one alters our society, these contagions are often glossed over in many American history classes. Um, this person was unaware of how serious past plagues were until they took a class on them this semester in college. Why do you think this is? And do you think that decades, centuries from now, the same will be true for COVID-19? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, our corporate memory in the history books for important things is, is really quite inadequate. And I believe in schools right now, or even in the media, the history is not given enough attention. In 1918, when there was the iconic Spanish flu, 50 to 100 million people died. When the population of the world was one third as large as it is now, which means it was the equivalent of 150 to 300 million people would have died. Right now, look at what we're going through. A few days ago, we passed a terrible landmark. The 300,000th person died of COVID-19. That's something that should be burned into the history books about what we're going through right now. Uh, this is something that we should never forget. Um, the next question is, how soon will it be before the vaccine will have a noticeable effect on COVID case statistics? Well, I think there are two parts of that, of an answer to that question, is how long would it take to see some impact? In other words, to bend the curve of the dynamics of the outbreak, and how long would it take to get such a degree of herd immunity that the actual outbreak is completely suppressed. I think it would take probably 30 or 40% of the population to be vaccinated, 
which we likely will get to by March or early April, to see an effect on the dynamics of the outbreak. But you're going to need, uh, I would say, between 70 and 85 percent of the population vaccinated to get such a degree of protection that the virus itself is put to such a low level that it's no longer a threat. That likely will take by the end of the summer. Can I ask, when you get asked questions about herd immunity, is there any confusion about the two basic ways to get there? Herd immunity is not something we don't want to have. It's something we do want to have, but we don't want to have it by people dying. And Well, that's the point. Alan brings up a good point. You can get herd immunity the really painful way, and you can get herd immunity the much less painful way. The most painful way is that enough people get infected and sick that the, the majority of the population is now immune. The only difficulty is that we know now that already we only have about 10 to 15% of the population has been infected and we've already lost 300,000 people. If you wanna wait until you get 70 to 80% of the population infected, you're gonna lose a couple of million people. That's unacceptable. The way to get to herd immunity is to not allow people to get infected, but to give them protection by a vaccine. So rather than having 70 to 85% of the people get infected, vaccinate 70 to 85% of the people. Then you get herd immunity and nobody's gonna die from that. And this follows up very closely with that. What is the best way to discuss the enormous value of vaccines with someone who is adamantly opposed to them? Well, I think what you need to do, at least in the experience that I've had, which is considerable, about people who are adamantly opposed, is that you don't want to confront them and make them feel like they're stupid. Because once you kind of get into a confrontative relationship with them, you're never going to convince them that let's sit down and talk about why you're against vaccine. And if you go through the steps of what their hesitancy and their reluctance is, very often you could convince them that the reason for their being against it is really not based on any reality or any science. I mean, people say, well, I'm against it because you went too quickly, I'm nervous. Well, the speed is related to the extraordinary scientific advances that didn't compromise safety and didn't compromise scientific integrity. If they say, well, I'm not so sure you made up your mind that it was safe and effective, are you getting pressure from the government? Are you getting pressure from the pharmaceutical company? Well, you say, well, wait a minute, let's look at how that decision was made. And in fact, it was made by independent bodies of people who have no allegiance to the government and no allegiance to the pharmaceutical company. When you explain that to people, you can very often get around and eliminate, if not attenuate, their reluctance to get vaccinated. Um. How do we prevent another pandemic from occurring in the future? What can we do differently? What can we do better? Well, we'll never prevent the emergence of new infections. But what we can do is prevent an emergence of a, fact, of a, of a virus from becoming a pandemic. And you do that by building up the health systems that can respond by supporting the fundamental basic and clinical research that would allow you to get a vaccine in 11 months or new drugs or new diagnostics. 
So it's a combination of building up your public health systems for pandemic preparedness at the same time as you support the biomedical research enterprise to be able to allow you to respond very quickly to a new challenge. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, my dear Dr. Fauci. Thank you, Alan. It's always a real pleasure to be with you. I always enjoy it. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Good night. Good night. But wait, there's more. The day after this conversation, I joined Dr. Fauci for another web-based discussion. This one was organized by Duke University's Science and Society program as part of a series called Coronavirus Conversations. We'd been talking about the need to encourage people to get vaccinated, and I wondered what Dr. Fauci thought of an idea I had. What do you think of this, Dr. Fauci? It seems to me the most trusted people, the best ambassadors, might be the people who are getting vaccinated themselves because they've made the choice to do it, and they have a good reason to do it. And there's a 15-minute period, I understand, where they're being observed after the shot. If during that period somebody could suggest to them, tell your friends, tell your friends why you did it, tell them how it's going for you and why any discomfort might be worth it to you, to just spread the word, just asking them to spread the word to people who trust them. And then it occurred to me, what about this as an idea? If it's possible to take a selfie while you're getting the shot and post it on the web, post it on social media, the people you know trust you and you can spread the word that way. So instead of taking a selfie, take a vaxi. Right. <laughs> good idea, Alan. So if you think it's a good idea too, you might want to get on board at hashtag vaxies. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Dr. Anthony Fauci has been the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases since 1984. And he's now president-elect Joe Biden's chief medical advisor on the coronavirus pandemic. He received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2008 for his work on HIV-AIDS. He still has not been awarded the Nobel Prize. Yet. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. 
Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Dr. Robert Stickgold. He has the answer to a question we've all asked since we were children. What are dreams? And why do we have them? It's now, I think, quite clear that, that dreaming actually serves a function. The brain is working all night long to process the information we took in during the day. For every two hours we spend awake, wandering through the, the world, experiencing all the myriad things that we experience during the day, for every two hours of that, the brain simply has to shut itself off from that world and for an hour to just stop and figure out what it means. Robert Stickgold and Why Brains Dream, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.